Today we are beginning a series on the first few chapters of Revelation, and uh, we're calling it Dear Church because that's what Revelation is. Revelation is a letter from Jesus to his people. It's a letter from God to the church. And as we think about that this morning, I want to begin by asking you, what would you think today? What would you feel today if suddenly you got a letter in your mail from Jesus? What would you think, what would you feel if you got a letter from God? Whoever you came with this morning, just take a moment and talk with them about that. What, what, what would you think? What would you feel? Uh, what would be going on in you if you had that kind of an experience? And if you are sitting alone, just take a moment and reflect on that where you are. But talk with one another about what you think or feel. You're quieter than the first service group. <laughs> hey, uh, as you're thinking about that, as you're reflecting about that, as you're talking about that, imagine that uh, we announced here today that Wednesday night at our annual meeting in a couple weeks, uh, we were going to read to the church a letter that came from God, a letter that came from Jesus to Community Covenant Church. You know, I would imagine there'd be a lot more people here at that meeting than normally goes to meetings in a church. And we'd be all ears. And that's what's happening in this book of Revelation. Jesus is sending through his apostle John, who's in exile in prison on the Isle of Patmos because of his faith. He's sending a letter to the churches in an area that we know of today as Turkey. It's Asia Minor back then. It was one of the provinces of the Roman Empire. And he's telling those churches, specifically the main seven of them that are there in that region, there were more, and we're going to see that through the series, but the main seven of them that he is writing to, specifically, he is saying, hey, here's some things that you're getting right. But here's some places where the warning lights are on. And you need to pay attention. And, and they did pay attention, as we're going to see here this morning, because uh, sometimes we read it and we go, well, did they really, did, did they change the world? Did they change their thinking? Did they take corrective action as a result of what Jesus was saying to them? And they did. And we're going to look at that. But what we want to do in this series as we talk about the letters to the seven churches that are in Revelation 2 and 3, and as we talk today about Revelation 1 and set this series up, is we want to talk about the context of what was happening in that day. Because all too often, you and I read Revelation, and we read those books, the Left Behind series, and all the stuff that's out there in Revelation, and we think it's all about future stuff. We look at Genesis to Jude, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, on through the next, the last book of the Bible, Jude. And aside from maybe a few prophetic writings that we see there in the Old Testament, we always look at the scripture with the interpretational principle of what did the original hearers hear? What was it that they were hearing when those words were spoken to them? But then we somehow get to Revelation, and it's kind of like we think, well, they didn't understand what was going on any more than we did, and, 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 and so that's all about future stuff. Can I tell you that's not true? The readers 
of Revelation in that day that John is writing to there in that province of Asia Minor, the area we know of Turkey today, knew exactly what John was talking about and what he was saying. And, uh, and they knew what was going on both for them that day as well as what was prophecy. And we think of prophecy, and what, what do we think of when we think of the word prophecy? We think it's kind of like telling the future, right? Telling about what's going to happen next week, or what's going to happen next year, or what's going to happen 20 years from now, or 100 years from now, and at the end of time. And while there is a little bit of that in Revelation, there at the last couple of chapters of Revelation, do you realize that most of Revelation was written to John's readers? They understood what was going on. And he was speaking into their lives. He was sharing with them really what most of prophecy is about. And prophecy isn't really, most of prophecy is not about telling the future. It's not about foretelling. It's about forthtelling. It's about telling a word from God. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament weren't talking about future times. Most of them were speaking a word from God into the lives of the people at that moment about some things where they were getting it right but also some things where some warning lights were on in their lives and the way they were living. And Jesus is wanting his people in that day, who John is writing to as well as today, to live as fully devoted followers of his. And, and so he's reaching out and saying, hey, there are some things that are going to be happening if you don't pay attention to these things going on in your life. And, and John, as he's writing this and writing to them, uses a lot of images that you and I just don't understand, right? And we think to ourselves, well, how did the people back then understand it? Well, understand that John is writing code to them. He's speaking, in a way, in code. John, for example, when he talks about Babylon, and you kind of look at that, well, Babylon was a nation and a, and a culture and a, uh, you know, from years before John is writing, centuries before John is writing, what's Babylon? Well, Babylon was code language for Rome. Because, face it, if, if John writes a letter to the churches talking about the evil empire of Rome and how Rome is doing all these things wrong, what's going to happen? He's going to get charged with treason and he's going to be executed. And the people who he's writing to, if they're caught with that kind of uh, seditious kind of reading, they're going to be in trouble as well. And so the image that John uses about Babylon is talking about Rome. The image that he uses about the mark of the beast, 666. If you're familiar with some of this stuff, you all know 666. It's the Antichrist, and everybody throughout history is trying to figure out who's 666. Who's the Antichrist? Who's the guy at the end that's going to be the Antichrist? Understand that John's readers knew exactly what he was saying. Because in Hebrew numerology, numbers mean something. Numbers are code for certain letters. And really, the word six, the number 666, it spells out in, in, to them, Nero Caesar. Nero, who was the first of the Caesars that began a policy of coming against Christian people and persecuting them. And so John's original hearers heard this, and they knew exactly what he was saying. And they knew what all those strange images that we read about as well. And the purpose for why he's writing is he's saying to them, hey, we are entering into a time where we're going to have a lot of opposition to our faith. We're entering into a time where we're going to face great persecution for what we believe as the people of God for being fully devoted followers of Jesus because of the world around us and, and what was going on at that time. 
And so he's saying, understand that God wants us to know in the end, he wins. As we live life in the midst of this world and all that's going on around us, be encouraged, take heart, stay true to your faith, don't stray from your faith. And in the weeks to come, as we look at some of these letters and what he says to the churches, we'll see, we will see how some of the people in those churches were beginning to buy into the culture that they were living in. And they were trying to balance it both. They were trying to follow Jesus, but they're trying to follow and live into the culture that they are. And, and Jesus is saying through John, you can't do it. You can't be a wholly devoted, fully devoted follower of mine and be a cultural kind of Christian. And, and that doesn't mean we revolt as Christians and rise up and lead a revolution. That's not what John is saying. He's not saying like we see a lot of Christians today just getting really angry and being abrasive. And sometimes I see Christians and some of the things that they're saying and I go, wow, we're, we're acting just like the world around us. And John is saying, and Jesus is saying through John, hey, there's a different way to live as my people. And we want you to be encouraged that in the end I win, that I'm in control, not all of what's going on in the culture around me, but I also want you to live fully for me. And that's the message that really Revelation is about. And, and so we need, to, uh, we need to approach this study these next uh, couple months, saying, as we look at these first chapters of Revelation, what did John's original hearers hear? What was it that they understood? Because understand that, that they got the message. They lived the message. God used them to change their part of the world. There ended up being revival in Asia Minor because they listened to what John was saying. And that's why I'm so fascinated by these texts, because if we can get the same message and the same understanding, God can use us as well to change our world that is so desperately in need of a revival. See, Jesus is saying... And we're going to see through these next weeks, the world doesn't change by political protest. The world doesn't change by us, you know, electing a whole bunch of Christian politicians. I, I, you know, Christian politicians are great, don't get me wrong, but that's not how Jesus changes his world. Jesus doesn't change his world by, by a bunch of pastors getting up and preaching and saying, this is how you have to vote. The way that Jesus changes his world is through God's people becoming like him together and going out into the world in which we live and being like Jesus. Loving God with all of our heart and our soul and our strength, our minds, and loving others, loving each other in community with each other, but also loving people out in the world. And we're going to see over these next weeks that that's how Jesus operated to change that province of Asia Minor that was one of the most evil provinces in all of the Roman Empire. And you realize that five of Jesus' disciples ultimately ended up in that area of the Roman Empire doing ministry. Five of them. We know that Judas uh, died uh, by his own hand at the time of the crucifixion and resurrection. We know that James was killed shortly after when the church began. But there were ten of the disciples that ended up living for quite a while after Jesus went back to heaven. And five of them end up in the province of Asia Minor, one of the most unbelievably evil provinces in the Roman Empire, and they make a difference. 
Because within a few generations after hearing these words from Revelation, Asia Minor went from being one of the most evil provinces in the Roman Empire to being 80 to 90% Christian. I don't know what that does to you, but that boggles my mind. That they could walk into a culture like they walked into when we understand what was going on there and in, in, within a couple generations, the province became 80 to 90% of the people were Christ followers. And, and, and these were, this was not a backwater type of place, okay? Understand, these weren't little towns that these guys were going to. These were major cities in that day. Ephesus that we're going to see in a couple of weeks, the first of the seven churches, Ephesus was the New York City of that day in the Roman Empire. Uh, Pergamum was the Washington, D.C. of that area. Hierapolis, which was near Laodicea, was the Las Vegas of that day. And these followers of Jesus, after the apostle Paul has gone into Asia Minor and he's begun some churches, these five disciples with their communities together, they didn't go alone, understand they went with their followers, their disciples, they move into these areas and they begin to operate like Jesus. They become like Jesus together and they love each other and they love people around them in spite of the persecution they're enduring. And God uses that, not politics, to change the world. And that part of the empire becomes 80 to 90% Christ followers. I got to tell you, that's why I want to understand this book. Because if it could happen then, it can happen now with us today. And that's why we want to talk about Revelation, not with the approach of what does it mean when it comes to end times, but rather, what did the original hearers hear? Because to Sardis, Jesus says, hey, you're almost dead. To Ephesus, he says, you've lost your first love. To, to Pergamum and, and to Laodicea, he says, you've got, you got some Nicolaitan problems, and we're going to talk about what that is. Uh, to, to Laodicea, he says, you, I, I wish that you were either hot or cold. You're neither. You're lukewarm, and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And, and, and we wonder sometimes when we read this, did they listen? Well, yeah, they listened. They had to have listened. Because in the middle of the second century, there was a thriving faith community of Christ followers in Sardis. And within a couple generations, people in those regions, many of them, most of them were followers of Jesus. God used his people to change the world. And what kind of world was it? Well, Real quickly, it was a world that worshipped all kinds of mythical gods. If you've studied Greek or Roman mythology, you know some of the mythical gods in which uh, the people had worshipped. And, and how did those gods come into being? Well, people made them up. People began in their own minds to think about, you know, these gods. And what they did was they created these mythological gods in their own image. They created them in the image of people, which is why the Greek gods have all the same sinful habits that people do. <laughs> If you look through and you read about those Greek mythological gods and the gods the Romans followed, I mean, they, they, there was rape, there was incest, there was theft, there was lying, there was stealing, there was murder. One of the gods murdered another one. We'll see that in a little, uh, one of these weeks. Uh, and, and, and these were the gods that people believed in. And, and they also had bought into the Greek philosophy that the human being was the center of the universe. And, and, and basically what the Greek philosophy is, is that I'm God. I can do what I want 
because I'm God. There are no absolutes. The only absolute is that truth revolves around me. Does that sound familiar like a lot of our culture today? Life is about me. You deserve a break today, right? Have it your way. A lot of Burger King, Roman, Greek people, right? Have it your way. And truth becomes defined by me and what I believe is truth, not by what an eternal God says is true. Truth is what I declare. And yet into the midst of that came Jesus Christ who said what? I am the way, the, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the one true God, the Father, but through me. And that truth is Jesus Christ. And these Christians couldn't just go in and say to people what we say today, hey, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and you'll go get eternal life in heaven because they were walking into a culture that were following all of these gods and all those gods said the same thing. They were the way to eternal life in heaven with them. And so these followers of Jesus needed something that would separate them from what was going on, separate Jesus from what was going on that these people were worshiping. How were they going to present the gospel to people who were not believers? And the way they did it was through love. It was by becoming like Jesus together and modeling the love of Jesus that they had for one another and modeling the love of Jesus that they had for the world, even in the face of persecution. And we'll see that in some of the weeks to come. These disciples became like Jesus together, and then God's Spirit used them to impact the world around them. And that's how Jesus would say to you and me, we're going to make a difference in this world in which you and I live. Well, not only did the early Christians have an issue that they had to deal with, and that's all these mythological gods that people were following in that day, but they also had an issue to deal with, and that was that the Roman emperors around that time decided to declare that they too were divine. They decided that they were going to declare their deity. See, understand that prior to the time of Jesus, Roman people did not think of their emperors, their kings, their queens as gods like they do in countries like Egypt and Persia and Babylon where the emperors were seen or the kings were seen as divine and were worshipped as such. But what happened, we know from history, is that Julius Caesar went east, and he went to Egypt. He ended up having an affair with Cleopatra, and while he was there in Egypt, he came under the influence of Egyptian thinking, and he comes back to the Roman Empire, and he starts declaring, I am divine, and you should be worshiping me. And then his son Augustus follows him in his reign, and Augustus says, well, if my dad is God, then I'm the son of God. And as I go through this, listen to, listen to how this all compares to Scripture and what we hear and what we believe about Jesus. And, and then uh, the Roman emperors after that uh, come on the scene. And uh, Tiberius comes and he pushes emperor worship a little harder. And then Caligula and Claudia. And then we get to Nero who becomes the first person who cr persecution of Christians becomes a national policy for him. And uh, he declares that he is divine. And then he dies, and then on the scene comes Vespasian, and then followed by his son Titus, and those are the two who destroy Jerusalem and the temple when some of the Jewish people revolt against Rome, and they really begin to push emperor worship. But then it gets really hard 
because Titus dies and Domitian comes to the throne. And historians tell us that in some people's opinion, until Adolf Hitler, Domitian is about the closest thing to the devil that any human being could ever be. And Domitian is absolutely determined that people are going to worship him as a god. And if they don't, they're going to they're pay the price. They're going to be enslaved into Roman galleys, or, or they may be sold into sex slavery, or, or they are going to be executed. And Pliny, the Roman writer, says about Domitian, he calls him, this is how he described him, the beast that came up out of the sea, his teeth dripping with the blood of good Roman citizens. Domitian. And Domitian comes on the scene just before John writes Revelation. And no wonder John is writing this to God's people about what they are going to face and saying, hang on, in the end, God's wins. And understand, don't, don't give in to the culture. Don't try to play both sides of the fence so that you can stay alive. Because like Jesus says, what good is it profit a person if we gain the whole world, but we lose our soul? And John is writing to these followers of Jesus who, who, who are facing that kind of thing from emperors who describe themselves in divine terms. So think about it. We have money, and what is on our money? What's the phrase that's on our money? In God we trust. Listen to some of what was on the money back then, the coins that were minted. Divine Julius. Augustus, divine son of God. Augustus, heavenly Savior. Augustus, Lord from eternity to eternity. Augustus, the giver of grace. Tiberius, the worshipped son of the worshipped God. Tiberius, the Holy One. I mean, do we see how much this sounds? It's, what a counterfeit of, of Jesus and of God. Caligula, divine father. This one, if it wasn't so tragic, would be comic. It's, it's gallows humor. Nero, the king of peace. Some peace he brought. Nero, God incarnate, holds the keys of death. Vespasian, on one side of the coin with Vespasian's picture, it says, he alone is worthy. You know what it says on the other side? To receive glory, honor, and power. Think about the worship scene in Revelation 4. The elders saying, worthy, worthy, worthy are you, O God. Worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. Domitian, the blood-stained savior of the world. Domitian, Lord of heaven and earth. Domitian, Lord of lords. Domitian, first and last. And each of these emperors had what we might call a Vatican of worship. Each of the towns, some of which are the seven churches that we're going to talk about, had these Vaticans of worship for the emperor. So, for instance, the Vatican of worship to Domitia was the first church we're going to look at in a couple weeks, Ephesus. And the Ephesian people built for Domitian two temples, one down by the water and one on the entrance coming into town. And what they did was they built it with 12 columns representing each of the 12 mythical gods or goddesses that the people followed in Roman mythological worship. 
And then on top of those 12 columns, they set up a platform with the altar to Domitian. In other words, they were saying Domitian is God of gods. Domitian is Lord of lords. And when those temples were done, Domitian showed up with a lot of his army, and they showed up for the dedication of the worship of, of him in those temples. They, they dedicated the temples. They have a service of dedication. And all of a sudden, one day, all of these Roman triremes, the ships, show up in the harbor there at Ephesus, and the Praetorian Guard gets off, and they go down marching down Harbor Street with the drums, and, 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 and the 24 elders of Roman emperor worship go down before with them in the white robes and with diadems on their heads. And, and, and the drums are playing, and then along comes the emperor. And along comes the emperor, and it says in history that he wore a golden sash around his chest. And the choir going before him is singing, Worthy are you, O God, to receive glory and honor and power. <laughs> Sound familiar? To the great worship scene in the throne room of heaven in Revelation 4, or what we're going to see here in a minute in Revelation 1. And as all this is happening, and the Christians there in Ephesus are knowing what is coming, can you imagine what they're feeling? I can imagine they're sitting in the hillsides around the city, or they're sitting there in the city, and they're watching this go on, and I got to think that their legs started to get a bit like jello. And their stomach begins to turn. And, and, and they know what's about to come if they don't go to those temples to worship Domitian. And then a letter arrives. A letter from John. And this won't be on the screen, but listen as I read the beginning part of Revelation 1. There's no doubt an elder there in the church at Ephesus gets up and he begins to read John's response to all of what is happening in the culture of that day. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and who obeys what it says. For the time is near. What time is near? The time of persecution. And after going on and greeting the seven churches in verses four and following and talking about Jesus and how all glory and power belong to him forever and ever. John says this in verse nine of Revelation one. Look at it as it is, comes up on the screen behind me. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. And suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. And it said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. 
and Laodicea. And he says, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands. Those seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches that he's just uh, written to and written about. And then Jesus goes on and he begins to reveal himself in this vision to John about how Jesus, not Domitian, not the emperors, not the mythological gods, not all the things that the people will worship in that day, but Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And listen to his description. Standing in the middle of the lampstands, verse 13, was someone like the Son of Man. That's Jesus. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. In other words, Domitian in that procession with the sash across his chest, he's not, he's not God. Jesus is. Domitian is a counterfeit. And then in verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. It's an image that's used in that day to speak about how Jesus has all wisdom and all knowledge. It's an image similar to Revelation 7, verse, I mean Daniel 7, verses 9 through 10, where there's a description of God as the ancient of days with white hair. And white hair being a symbol of wisdom. And, and he has all wisdom, he's saying, because he's eternal. He knows every detail about everyone's life. He's never surprised. In fact, in Revelation 1.8, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I was there at the beginning when it all got started, and I'll be there at the end. I know how it's all going to end, so take heart. Take courage. Don't get caught up in the way of the world and living in the world's way. Follow me, he's saying. And then in verse 14, I love this one. His eyes were like flames of fire. What does that mean? What does it mean his eyes are like flames of fire? Well, let me ask you something. You're riding down the street, and all of a sudden behind you, you notice a car with some blue lights on the top. What does that do to your driving habit at that moment? You drive a little differently, don't you? Right? Drive a little differently at that point because eyes are blazing fire on you. I laugh, you know, this is Father's Day and we were talking about the kids last night with a group of people that we were with and we were talking about how Vanessa always told our kids, I have eyes in the back of my head. I will find out what you are doing. These eyes that are fire, he's talking about here in verse 14 is saying that God has a purifying gaze on us, does it make a difference in how you and I live our life? Does it make a difference in how you and I live? Do we live in the light of the purifying gaze of God? Do we, do we let God bring his corrective influence into your life and mine when we do things that, that hurt our relationship with him or hurt our relationship with others? God offers us reliable correction because he's God. Do we, do we listen to that or we get defensive and live into the Greek way of living? You know, it's my, my life. I'm going to do it my way, you know. Heard someone say that the hymn that they'll sing in hell is Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way. The hymn they'll sing in heaven is I Did It God's Way. Verse 15, the beginning of it says, his feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. He's saying here that Jesus is a foundation on which you and I should build our life. 
because that foundation won't crumble. Think about it. Iron will rust. Iron will decay. But when iron is mixed with copper, it becomes bronze and it doesn't rust. It's a foundation we can build our life on, John is saying, especially in times of tribulation and trial, especially when we're really going through it. He's saying, build our life on the foundation of a relationship with Jesus Christ because he will offer us unshakable peace. And he will walk with us and be with us in the midst of whatever it is we have thrown at us. And then the end part of that verse 15, it says, His voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. Some of your translations will say rushing waters. And the image here, along with the image in verse 16 uh, that talks about the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, is basically speaking about the unchallengeable power and authority of God. God is the most powerful thing that exists. And, and so think about it. In a day before amplification, in a day before sound systems that could bring things to a huge decibel, about the most loud sound that anybody could imagine would be roaring water an ocean surf or niagara falls ever been to niagara falls remember the times vanessa and i've been there a few times and and standing near the falls you got to pretty much scream at each other to hear each other it's deafening and john is saying in this vision his voice thunders like mighty ocean waves in other words he has all power and all authority and that goes along then with verse 16 where it says he held seven stars in his hands and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. The word of God is that sword coming from his mouth. And he has all authority. And as a result, John is saying he will keep us in eternal safety as we face what we face living life in this world. He will keep us well. And we may not make it through this life. We may face persecution, and we may have our life taken, John is saying, but in the end, God wins, and in the end, we will be with him, and he will keep us eternally safe. And that image of God having the, or Jesus having the seven stars in his right hands, the seven stars probably represent seven angels, seven messengers, or, or the seven pastors, in a sense, of those seven churches. And what he's saying is that he's in his right hand. Why the right hand? What's significant about the right hand versus the left? Well, most people were right hand. That's their dominant hand. And when they held a sword or they held something in their right hand, they were ready for action. And John is saying Jesus is going to act, and he's going to act through the seven pastors, through the seven churches. He's going to act through these people who are ultimately going to go out and become like him and change their world. And John says, don't buy into all of what the world says. Domitian is not God. And then at the end of that verse, he says his face was like the sun and all of its brilliance. God is unblemished righteousness, absolute holiness. Brings us back to the image of the transfiguration in Matthew 17, where it says the glory of God shone on the face of Jesus, that it shone like a sun. They couldn't even look at it. It was so radiant. And John 1 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message we've heard from him and declare for you that God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. God is completely, absolutely holy. And John realizes that he's a sinner. He's a sinner. And his life doesn't match up. He's not worthy. It's, it's what we sang about this morning. John recognizes that. And as a result, he becomes fearful. 
And look at what he says in verses 17 through 18. When I saw him, I, I fell at his feet as if I was dead. In other words, I realized who I am as being unworthy in the sight of a, a holy and absolutely righteous God, and I'm not worthy to be in his presence. But what happens? God loves him. And he lays his right hand on me. Jesus laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and the grave. He's saying, I have power over sin. I have power over death. I have power over all of that. Do not be afraid. You can come to me and we can talk and we can be together and I will not take your life because of my grace and my mercy. You don't need to be afraid. And he reaches out and he touches John on his shoulder. And as I thought about that and I thought about what image could I talk about today that would kind of speak about this, I, I think of the image of Santa Claus. Because <laughs> think about it. For a lot of kids, Santa Claus is not this kind of ho-ho-ho, jolly kind of, hey, there's, there's a lot of fear with kids. There was in our daughter. She wouldn't go near Santa. To, to, she wouldn't go near him at all, even if it meant she didn't get any presents. <laughs> And I think about the story I heard John Orberg write about a kindergarten class one time. I want to read it to you. He says, one day in December, a visitor came to his kindergarten class, and this visitor was wearing a big red suit with a splendid sash. And his head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow, and on his feet were black boots, black as coal. And his voice was like a trumpet, like the sound of many waters. And he said, ho, 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 I'm here to see who's been naughty and who's been nice and how you've behaved. Come and sit on Santa's lap. And Orberg writes, now we tend to think as adults that when kids see Santa, they're just filled with joy and hope and delight and everything. But often they experience another motion. Anybody want to guess, he writes? <laughs> Fear. And these five-year-old kids were terrified as Santa stood in their midst and the glory of Santa shone all around them and they were so afraid. And then the teacher got a chair out and said, okay, I want one of you children to come here and sit in Santa's lap and talk about your behavior. <laughs> Hortberg writes, it was a great white throne of judgment right there in kindergarten. And nobody moved. <laughs> Finally, Santa looked at one little five-year-old boy named Rich and said, come sit on Santa's lap. And so Rich started to move. And what Rich didn't know was the guy who was there playing Santa Claus was actually a man from his church, Mr. Cooper, who Rich knew and who Rich actually liked quite a lot. But Rich didn't know that. And so Rich came up to him, and Santa reached and picked him up and felt that little five-year-old body trembling. He felt Rich's fear. And in that moment, he stopped, and he pulled his beard back, and he whispered just loud enough so only Rich could hear him, Rich, it's okay. It's Mr. Cooper. Don't be afraid. And here in Revelation... John sees one like the Son of Man. 
and the glory of Jesus shines and John realizes who he is in comparison to him and he falls down and faints and Jesus with his love and his mercy reaches out and he touches John on the shoulder and he says, John, it's me. It's Jesus. We fish together. We ate together. We lived together for three years. You know I love you. And John, your sin, I've taken care of that. I, I've got the keys to death and to Hades and to hell. I've taken care of it. I got them from my dad. Death, no big deal, John. Look at me. <laughs> I'm alive after the being crucified. Don't get worked up, John is saying to the to, in this vision that Jesus is saying to John, and John is passing on to the believers who are going to face what they're going to face. He's saying, you see the emperor? He's a counterfeit. He's not God. And go home and read Revelation 4, and you'll see there in Revelation 4 all of the images of that procession that Domitian and the other emperors would have when they would come into a community where they were going to dedicate the temple in worship to them. And in Revelation 4, in those images, John and Jesus, Jesus is saying to us through John, and John is passing that on to the people in his day, and we're passing it on now. It may look like Domitian has control. It may look like evil in this world today has control. Not only 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor, but here in our world today. But folks, God is still in control. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who is almighty and who we worship. And he has not lost control of what's going on in the world. He has not lost control. And John is writing to an ordinary group of people who are facing the devil head on. And you and I face the devil head on in our culture and in our world today as well. And John is writing to people, some of whom were shrinking back out of fear and persecution, and he's writing to some who are trying to fit into the culture and live like the world and still be followers of Jesus and who are buying into what we could call a Christian nationalism. It's happening back then too, and we're going to see some of that over these next weeks. And Jesus is saying through John and through his followers and what happened when they went into Asia Minor and within a few generations that province became 80 to 90% Christian. He's saying, it's not how my followers live. My followers live this way. My followers don't put our hope in, in, in their hope in, in, in wealth and in possessions. Our hope is not in the White House. It is not in Congress. It is not in who sits on the seats of the Supreme Court. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. First Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Not through who gets elected. Not through who gets appointed to the Supreme Court but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we know how the story ends. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities of this dark age. In the end, God wins. And when you and I live that way, 
and we live together in the vision that we have as a church of becoming like Jesus together, God will use us just as he used the people who went into Asia Minor almost 2,000 years ago. He will use us as the salt of the earth. I want to close with that image because that's what God is calling you and me to be about, right? In Matthew 5, 13, the Bible says this, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. What on earth is he talking about? Well, we know salt is a preservative, and so there's that sense and that idea of what's going on in this image of the passage, but there's something really more going on in that, and you've got to understand what they did in that day with salt and how they used it to be able to understand. It was not only used to put in meat to preserve meat and keep it from rotting, so there's that image of how you and I are called to kind of be a preservative in our culture. But there's something else that speaks to us in this. And it comes from Luke, chapter 14. And Luke grew up in Asia. Understand that. Luke grew up in Asia Minor, the places where... He grew up in Lystra. The place was where Paul, John is writing to. And Luke says in Luke 14, 35, flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown away. Anyone who has ears should listen and understand. What on earth is he talking about? That, that salt isn't good anymore. If it loses its saltiness, it's not good for the manure pile anymore. Well, well, how do you think that people heated their food back in that day with fuel? I mean, you're in a region of the world where there aren't a lot of trees. There's not a lot of wood. It's not like they could always go out and cut trees down and fire, you know, heat their stoves with firewood. They heated their stoves and they burned fuel by taking the, for a part of the year, the olive pressings, the dried olive pressings, because those would burn hot and they would burn a long time and they would use that for fuel. And when that ran out, because you had a lot of animals in that part of the world, they'd go out and they'd take the dry manure and they'd use that for fuel. And about a hundred years before the time of Jesus, what they discovered was that if you took salt and you mixed it in with the manure, that fuel would burn about ten times hotter and about ten times longer. And ultimately then, when the salt lost its chemical ability to be able to impact the manure as fuel, they dig it out and pitch it out and throw it on the ground and it, they trample on it. And I think that what's going on here, especially in Luke, because he comes from Lister, he comes from Asia Minor, he's, I, I got to think, he thought of probably Asia as one big manure pile with all that was going on. And, and we don't really know if that's what he thought, you know. Well, I'm going to ask him someday when we get there. But we do know this. If you and I are going to be the salt of the earth and make a difference in the world in which God has called us to live and where he has placed us here in Johnson County, it isn't going to happen by you and I being a part of a holy huddle and all these safe little cloisters that we have as a church. It's going to be by us getting out into the culture in which we live, even when that culture gets a bit smelly and a bit like manure, and, and, it, and we get mixed in with it. And God can use us to make a difference. But we've got to be out there in the world in which we live. We can't just be here at church and then go out and try to hide from what is going on in the culture around us. 
We're not a safe community. That's not what we're designed to be. We're designed to go out into the world in which we live, and we're gonna see that in the weeks to come as we watch what, it, what these disciples did and how it changed their world and what Jesus is saying to these churches, these seven churches in Asia Minor. And when they were willing to go out into their world and bring the love of Jesus with them, they exploded, and the gospel exploded. The danger, of course, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, is how do you live in the culture? How do you live life in the manure pit and not become like it? And we're going to see what John's instructions are about how to do that so that we too can learn from that. And a lot of it is about community. A lot of it is about encouraging each other and being with each other and living together as God's people and then going out in the world together and making a difference. Becoming like Jesus together and being the salt of the earth.